Welcome back to a new series of The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and today we're talking about the Jesuit Order. The Jesuit Order, or Society of Jesus, is a congregation of the Catholic Church, which has a history stretching back to the 16th century. The Jesuit Order played an important part in the spreading of the Catholic faith beyond the borders of Europe, especially to South America and Asia. And they were very much involved in the Counter-Reformation, by which the Catholic Church resisted the rise of Protestantism in the 16th and 17th centuries. The opening lines of the Order's founding document make a stirring appeal to, quote, whoever desires to serve as a soldier of God beneath the banner of the cross, unquote. And despite this military language, and despite their long history of missionary activity, the Jesuits are mostly thought of as the principal intellectual wing of the Catholic Church. They're involved in education, research, and culture. And the Order has founded universities and schools and colleges all around the globe. In this part of the world, the St. Paul Jesuit College was founded in Macau as early as 1594. And the sinologist Matteo Ricci was one of the many brilliant scholars that the Order has produced. There are about 17,000 Jesuits in the world today, among them, of course, the head of the church, Pope Francis, the first Jesuit pope. Well, I'm talking today with Father Stephen Tong, superior of the Jesuit community in Hong Kong and director of the Ignatian Xavier Retreat House on Changchao, and with Peter Kunick, a scholar of early modern English history, the 15th and 16th century, including church history, who is also the historian of the University of Hong Kong. So, Peter, I'm going to start with you f with a historical question. The order, the Jesuit order was founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 1530s. So can you give us some context about the state of the church in Europe at that time? I guess this is a period that's noted for the upheaval that's occurring in the church across Europe. Um, of course, it's the time of the Reformation, um, reformers such as Luther and Calvin are very active during this period. In fact, when Ignatius arrives in Paris in 1534, uh, there's just been a big uh, dispute with Calvin uh, in Paris. So um, this is really um, the, the context of, of the foundation of the order. Uh, the uh, traditional power of the church, the universality of the Catholic Church, is beginning to disintegrate. Because it's being challenged by clerics who we now call Protestant. Uh, indeed, call but um, I guess what they're trying to do is to reform the church from within. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a great deal of worry about the education of the clergy, uh, the fact that they're not educated well enough. It's also the time of the Renaissance where there's a, uh, the rise of humanism, a greater respect for the ancient learning of Greece and Rome. Uh, so the expectations uh, on the clergy uh, are increasing during this time. And unfortunately, in many parts of Europe, the Catholic clergy weren't living up to those new expectations of the time. So um, St. Ignatius uh, comes on the scene really in the middle of this tumult. Uh, and, of course, there's also the threat from the Ottoman Turks um, uh, from the east. So it's really a, a very um, a tense period in the church's history coming at the time when it does. Um, and warfare in Europe, of course, too. The major powers of Europe are at war with each other, uh, threatening the papacy. So, so this, is a, this is a very uh, unstable period in the church's history. So a, a lot of turmoil 
going on, and part of it is this struggle between different interpretations of Christianity and different authorities, which is going to last for another 200 years or so. Yes, and of course the uh, the main reformers really um, taking a humanist approach and saying we have to go back to the original texts of the of the Christian Church. We have to look at the Bible um, and the teachings of, of the founder Jesus Christ. And um, of course, there were bound to be different interpretations of of those uh, foundational che- texts of the Church. Tell us about the Counter Reformation. Well, I guess the Counter-Reformation, uh, of course the term Counter-Reformation has been much debated over the last few years. Uh, a lot of Catholic historians would say that it's really the Catholic Reformation rather than the Counter-Reformation. But the Counter-Reformation is really an attempt by the Catholic Church uh, to initiate reform uh, within its own institutions uh, in response to, uh, to the uh, Protestant reformers' uh, demands. Uh, and coming out of that process, we have new religious orders, the Jesuits being one of them, uh, but also the Great Council of the Church, the Council of Trent, which uh, took place over 20-odd years and uh, came up with uh, a whole lot of new um, approaches and, and new rules to try and um, bring a, a stricter discipline to the church than perhaps had been the case over the last 30 or 40 years. I think... Discipline may turn out to be a bit of a theme of this conversation. So <laughs> let's turn now to that we've got the context. The church, the Catholic Church, feeling rather embattled because of these pressures from the Protestant reformers, so needing to renew itself from within. And St. Ignatius of Loyola, who's the founder of your order, Stephen, um, should we see him as part of that initiative to renew the Catholic Church? Yeah, certainly. I, I really agreed with Peter about uh, in my Jesuit formation. Sure, first, I'm not a historian. I'm not a Western person. Uh, in my formation, we never have a sense so-called counter anything. Uh, we see the Jesuit um, appearance in history is more really serving the Church and try to be available uh, missionaries to be sent to anywhere of the world. Because apart from all the uh, issues or problems within the church, I think the positive thing is the world expanding. I think one thing is important is um, the year when St. Ignatius was born is the year after uh, Columbus discovered the, the new continent. 1493. Uh, uh, yeah, 1993. Yeah, he's born in 91. So okay. that's why he <clears throat> he's a big horizon of the world. I think the Jesuit is, in a way, fortunately, uh, to establish in this much bigger horizon. Oh, that's very interesting. So the kind of globalism of the Jesuits, yeah, yeah. You're, you're linking to the expansion of... of uh, European cultures into the yeah. uh, the rest of the world. Yeah. Okay, tell us something about Saint Ignatius himself. Where did he come from? Yeah, certainly he's a Spaniard uh, from is a is a so-called uh, Basque. Basque. Uh, oh, Basque. So a very strong character. Uh, um, so he came into the attention of 
uh, universal history uh, in 1521 because of his uh, conversion uh, to be some kind of pilgrim. He called himself a pilgrim uh, in his autobiography. So because of this conversion experience, he really developed a new way of understanding faith in terms of personal relationship with the Lord. So this uh, conversion, was he already a priest? No, he's just a lay person. He was a soldier. Actually, he so never, yeah. in a way, never thought of being a religious. Oh, okay. Uh, in, he has two major conversion experiments. One is on the uh, sick bed in his castle in Loyola, uh, 1521, mm -hmm. uh, a very important religious experience that he decided to go to Jerusalem to imitate the Lord, even physically, to live in his place. The second, maybe around one or one year later, he he uh, embarked to uh, Barcelona and then tried to go to the Holy Land. In between, he spent 10 months in Marisa, uh, close to Barcelona. Uh, it's a very deep uh, desolation experience. But also, finally, it's a f great conversion uh, that he understands the mystery of the Holy Trinity that give him a sense of missionary spirit. So the final statement is helping souls. That has become the the important dynamic of the whole Jesuit ministry, helping souls. Uh, so, of course, he later he still have the own journey, tried to stay in Jerusalem, but refused by the Franciscan provincial. And he had to return to the homeland and find his way, try to study. But as a layperson, exactly, uh, suspected by the authority, he was invited few times by the Inquisition. He was even jailed for more than 40 days because he has no theology training. So final statement is he has to receive four-year theology training before he could uh, preach or guide people in spiritual direction. So he found out Spain does not suit him. So he had to move to Paris, this kind of liberal atmosphere to study. And then he met other companions. They have no idea of founding a religious order either. He's, they finally, he's a Basque, he's very determined, he wanted to go to Jerusalem. So after refusal, he now uh, got six other companions, decided together to go to Jerusalem after getting the blessing from the Pope and try to stay there. There's the whole plan mm -hmm. ah, in the beginning. So the the order is founded. This is in the 1540. Okay. And I suppose when we think about the early accomplishments of the order, we think particularly about missionary work. So let me come back to you, Peter. This is another historical question. To say something about how the Jesuits took part in missionary work and we think of them particularly at least I think of them particularly as outside Europe yes is that accurate I do, well I think that there's the two sides of the Jesuit missionary work in the 16th century you, you could say that they do a lot of missionary work in Europe itself mm -hmm. and certainly the largest number of Jesuits and there were a huge number by by 1565 uh, just 25 years after the foundation, uh, there were 3,500 members of the order. It was an enormous expansion in a very short time. Now, most of these were in Europe working, uh, and many of them, of course, in Germany, in Portugal, and in Spain. 
But right at the beginning, uh, St. Francis Xavier was sent to Asia in 1541, um, set up the the Jesuit presence in Goa, which, of course, was the centre of the Portuguese Empire in Asia. Uh, From Goa, uh, moved to um, um, uh, Japan and tried to get into China. Uh, So... Uh, really, Saint Francis Xavier is the uh, is the first of, of the great missionaries uh, in the the early modern period in Asia. Um, on the other side of the world, of course, the Spanish had settled uh, in the New World, and uh, the Jesuits came into Mexico, into Peru, uh, but also into Brazil with the Portuguese. So, uh, you have these two wings of missionary activity outside of Europe. Uh, one in Asia, one in the Americas. So they're actually not only a spiritual force, I think, in South America, but also a strong political force and a, and a military one too. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I would describe them as a military force, but but certainly there's a, a they became uh, embroiled in the politics of, mm-hmm. of the day later, of course, in the 18th century, uh, where they they set up uh, communities of natives, uh, native South Americans, uh, called reductions, and there they cared for them, they converted them, um, they gave them um, some succor against the uh, the militarist uh, Portuguese and, and mm-hmm. Spanish who wanted to enslave them so so in this sense the Jesuits do um, become a political force and and one that ultimately is suppressed by both the Spanish and the Portuguese governments to explore the question of what it means to be a a Jesuit and to ask you Stephen how well the question is how did you become a Jesuit did you decide to be a priest first and then choose the Jesuit order how did it work do you remember? <laughs> sure, certainly. <laughs> Being a Jesuit was not my first consideration. Uh, I thought of uh, more on close to the monastic uh, calling. Uh, um, but of course, Jesuits uh, was in my life during my college years, and after my college year, I taught in Macau. So you, you were educated by but, Jesuits? Uh, in university. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or kindergarten, the school, <laughs> but not in in middle. Okay. I born and grew up in Macau, so the Jesuits there, I I know them. Mm. Uh, so, but after um, I I try to enter the monastery, uh, but I I in a way failed, <laughs> and I left after two months and and came out. I started to think again. My whole life, what should where should I go? Uh, even I thought of married life uh, from the started to think the whole my home vocation uh, but in a retreat I really experienced certain direct uh, communication from the Lord in in my in my heart so a voice uh, to be a, je- a Jesuit uh, this calling from within my heart and of course I recalled all my experience with the Jesuits in those last few years and all this that uh, granted me uh, the great consolation and I decided to join. And after I joined and read about the life of St. Ignatius, be really affirming, I went through a lot of complicated journey like St. Ignatius himself, so I really quite very affirming. Yeah. How long does the training take for, for a person to train as a Jesuit? 
in a way, everyone was a bit different. Depend whether you you got a, a, a basic de degree yeah. before you joined. Uh, if you had already a basic degree, I think uh, becoming a priest maybe around ten years, and maybe around f ten to fifteen years to get uh, into the final profession. Uh, to really so-called uh, the final vows in the Society of Jesus. They become a full membership in the Society. So your training, you would, is this right, you would be doing a, a training similar to the training undergone by other people wanting to become priests in the Catholic Church, but something extra, mm. that this is the Jesuit part uh, of it. The What's ex the extra part? Uh, the extra Different from Dyson priests, maybe we in the beginning like other religious also uh, to have two years of novitiate and maybe some kind of teaching uh, or other pastoral work in between. But finally, after the priesthood, uh, we are sent to certain uh, professional areas to serve. So maybe if in a professional institutions we we need the. Uh, so-called the professional de degrees. I want to ask about the spiritual exercises um, because this, it seems to me this is the, the central document of, of the Jesuit order. What, what's involved and can anybody do them? Well, the spiritual exercises really begin with that experience that Stephen was talking about of St. Ignatius in the cave, examining himself, trying to discern his future, um, and uh, the spiritual exercises um, come from uh, many different sources. And, the, this and is a, a document written by by Saint Ignatius. Yes. So the sources are many, but he puts the spiritual exercises together as as a way, really, of allowing uh, the people who wanted to join him to discern their vocation. And it's all really about vocation, determining what you really should be doing and uh, not necessarily becoming a Jesuit or a priest or, or whatever. And that's why uh, the spiritual exercises have been used with lay people as well. So, um, Is it a course of study? Well, um, I think traditionally it's a, a month-long retreat uh, divided into three sections over the four weeks. And uh, it's all about um, first arriving at a decision, uh, taking that decision, and then reflecting upon how that decision is going to shape the rest of your life. So it's a very, uh, for most people who take the spiritual exercises, and I speak as someone who hasn't taken them, <laughs> but uh, those people uh, that I know who have, it, it's a very um, emotional and, and life-changing experience. And really this, uh, this um, document that uh, Ignatius produced uh, becomes a very um, powerful tool in the hands of the Jesuits and it really makes the Jesuits the, f the first retreat givers in, in the modern world and of course it's the basis of most of the, uh, of the retreats that anyone takes part in today. It's really a, an Ignatian exercise of, of self-discernment. So this is very much your your area, isn't it, um, <clears throat> Stephen? Because you're you're in charge of the retreat house. And <laughs> uh, now, when you yeah. were training mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. to to become a Jesuit, you must have taken, if that's the right word, gone through the Ignatian spiritual exercises mm -hmm. yourself. Is it something that you do from time to time, or do you only do it once? Yeah. Well, first, I I 
Uh, Peter said very right. I don't have much to add uh, <laughs> how he described the spiritual exercises, the meaning and purpose. Uh, so usually for religious, uh, every year we have so-called annual retreat, usually eight days. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an adaptation of the so-called 30-day long retreat. Uh, so it's a way of repetition and also we examine our Every year we have new experience. We, we, we examine again all the experiences along with our own calling. So the basic dynamic of spiritual exercises, if I want to add a few words, is uh, so-called the dynamic of freedom from in order freedom for. So we so-called the conversion experience, just like St. Ignatius and many Christians experience. We have, might have a major conversion in our life, once or two times in our life. And then every year we still have conversion, little conversion from our uh, old patterns or, yeah, uh, not not uh, suitable ways of doing things we need mm-hmm. to change. This is the freedom from. In order to free us to go for um, greater things or greater calling, uh, so-called for the greater glory of God, this the freedom, availability to be sent, uh, to be called to greater things, to be ch- so-called final is change, to, to, for freedom to change. I, I think it's, it's also interesting that it's called the spiritual exercises. It's as, as if the spirit has to be exercised, yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, it's, a, exactly. you know, like it's, physical exercises. it's like physical you exercises. It's a symbol, yeah. Yes. Uh, so and as a person who is in charge of a retreat, you would help people to go through the exercises, is that right? Exactly. You're, yeah, you're exactly. like a tutor. Yeah, uh, you can say a companion because mm. or conversation partner. Yeah. Uh, uh, traditionally, in the church, we call spiritual director. Uh, um, so, uh, it's from also part of the conversion experience of uh, Saint Ignatius, his first ministry. He called himself doing spiritual conversation. Good. So we've, we've started talking about the Jesuit order as pretty much a s- spiritual discipline, but it's also an institution. And you were talking, Peter, about the way it expanded enormously in the early years, mm-hmm. both in personnel and then suddenly it's a global movement. It expanded very rapidly, and, uh, of course, uh, Ignatius himself um, encouraged the expansion uh, because he saw that there was a lot of work that needed to be done and uh, his uh, companions were were doing good work and he saw no reason why that work shouldn't expand, uh, even around the world. Um, Various popes have been at odds with the Jesuits, but, of course, the Jesuits take this very special vow or promise uh, to go wherever they are sent by the Pope, and so uh, they've always been um, thought of as the soldiers of the Pope. Um, and yet, um, you know, the, the generals of the order and popes have uh, had arguments with each other. Uh, they've not seen eye to eye exactly uh, on... The, there has been a time when the, the church tried to close them down, is that right? Yeah. This is largely because of, of external pressure, Pressure coming from the from the state, from the secular power, that feels that the Jesuits are, are just too weighty. They're, they're, 
they're interfering too much. Would that be right? Well, um, of course, all along they've been thought of as being far too powerful for their own good. Mm. We have to remember that by the uh, 1770s, the Jesuits had established more than 800 colleges, and of course these were very powerful institutions which took boys from an earlier age right through to a university education. It was the the main uh, vocation ground for the Jesuits themselves, their colleges, and the products of these colleges entered the professions. Uh, They were very powerful politically. Uh, The Jesuits, even though they had uh, an apostolate with the poor and the needy, um, were also very close to the uh, to the ruling class, the aristocracy in each of these European nations. So um, it was inevitable that the Jesuits would get caught up in, in political matters uh, and seen to be very uh, powerful. Uh, and, of course, part of what the Jesuits do is build these incredible churches and buildings in the Baroque style. So it actually looks as if they're very powerful. Were they rich? Well, you could say that they were rich in some senses, uh, not individually as, mm-hmm. as individual Jesuits, yeah. but the order as a whole had work to do, and in order to do that work, they had to finance it. So the educational work, the uh, the missionary work, the the pastoral work that they performed had to be supported in some way, and, uh, and this caused... Um, uh, issues within the order, even at an early stage. Do we just rely on arms, uh, going around begging for our uh, our finances, or do we need to have some sort of permanent source of income so that we can uh, have our institutions running uh, successfully and, and without uh, the sorts of problems that an educational institution gets into when there's not enough money. So, you know, I think we have to think of the Jesuits as a... It, it's not just a spiritual institution, but like any church institutions, uh, you know, there's a political dimension, there's an economic di- dimension to them as well, a social dimension. Sure. Uh, it's probably fair to say that every Jesuit is involved in education one way or another. Sure. And certainly in educational institutions, universities and schools and and colleges. And we've almost run out of time, Stephen, but tell us something briefly, if you can, about what a Jesuit education is. What do Jesuits try to inculcate which other educators might not? In one statement, uh, just education try to form a person as a whole person. Mm -hmm. Uh, A whole person... Uh, implies uh, uh, physically, uh, uh, psychologically, uh, spiritually uh, integrated and really um, open himself to greater values, uh, so-called greater glory of God, to greater values and also greater service for people. Mm-hmm. But the first is the better integration of the person is himself. In a way, you can say the Society of Jesus is greatly influenced by the Renaissance, mm-hmm. the humanism uh, yeah. that at emphasize so much at that time. So, But then the, um, the Jesuit Ratio Studiorum was very much, I think, a, a Renaissance humanist um, mm-hmm. um, way of educating students. There was uh, Latin, there was Greek, uh, there was obviously scripture. This and, is the and curriculum. This is the curriculum, but yeah. you had classical literature, you had poetry, you had mm. science, you had the liberal arts, you had music, you had acting. Yeah, yeah. It was really bringing all of these things together, and I agree, mm-hmm. Stephen, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the whole man. Yeah. It's, the, it's that, uh, you know, that acme of what the Renaissance man is meant to be uh, encapsulated in every boy that gets a Jesuit education. Thank you very much to Father Stephen Tong and to Peter Kinnick, and thank you for listening.